and then Ibn al-Lil by Mashru Layla. I have some basic specs to give for, for Music for Mortals first by Stuart Davis, and then I'll let my co-host give his background on it as his, his pick first. So Stuart Davis's Music for Mortals came out in 2012. It has 12 tracks, 42 minutes. You can find it in the category of singer-songwriter on the label Stuart Davis Music, self-released. Pretty quiet on all music. There is not much user ratings going on there. So you can find the album on iTunes and his personal website, which is quite multifaceted. We'll talk about all those things in a minute. And DJ Keep Rumi, tell me what you can about this guy. Yes, yeah, so Stuart Davis is someone I heard, I think I went to a free concert of his at a student union while I was living in Iowa City for a while. Mm. And at least at, at that point, I think he was also based in Iowa. He's an intriguing performer and singer-songwriter where, I don't know if we maybe have a bit of a stereotype of the singer-songwriter that's not super well-known to be a bit maybe modest in their self-presentation, in their re- recording style. And I'm thinking particularly of like the indie singer-songwriter that, you know, kind mm-hmm. of stays somewhat comfortably in, in obscurity. Mm-hmm. But there's more of a kind of tension there with, with Stuart, where he really, really goes for it as a performer and a recording artist. Just a lot of energy, you know, a lot of genres being drawn on. So, you know, someone who clearly, you know, knows a lot about tons of different popular musical genres. Yeah, has a kind of an intriguing uh, performance style drawing on, you know, religious mythology, speculation about aliens, you know, all kinds mm-hmm. of out there stuff. Yeah, had you heard of him before? And then what are your first impressions? I, I had not. And so, uh, yeah, I would agree. He seems very comfortable in the spotlight. I wonder if you can say more about his live performance. Does he uh, does he crowd surf? Does he do a really long set? Or what, the, <laughs> what, what about his performance is distinctive? So people are curious enough to, to poke around online. There's a, a bit of a difference where he, you know, I think partly by virtue of not being incredibly famous. I mean, he doesn't tour around with eight other people. He doesn't play huge rock arenas. He's playing clubs or student unions for maybe a hundred or 200 people. So normally when he, normally his live shows, and this is also true, just poking around on um, YouTube and the like more recently is just him with a guitar and often even a acoustic guitar, but still huh. someone who is the type of performer you watch him for an hour and a half and you kind of say, well, he, he definitely could have done four to five hours if that was the, con- <laughs> you know, the, con- the, con- the contract. Um, he, seems, he seems a ball of energy. Nope. Yes. And uh, yeah, right. Yeah. No, I think that uh, as you mentioned with most singer songwriters being, you know, content to you know, meditate on their own obscurity, he's, he's taken some bravery and, not only being presumably a very animated performer, but also sticking with his own name, unlike Trent Reznor, for example, and having similar dark themes. And he still gets second billing to an early 20th century jazz artist and visual artist by the same name. But uh, he's got the self-promotion part, and he, he wouldn't mind being a pop star, it seems like. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. <laughs> no, I, I would never have stumbled upon him. I feel like you could have introduced me to him in Oberlin, and I would have said, this guy's too folksy for me. But uh, And even, even his earlier stuff sounds a little bit even country at times, and, uh, which was surprising. Uh, there's definitely an evolution to his albums. I, I've uh, listened to, I think, most of them. So he's very consistent for most of the late 20th century, about an album a year, and then well into the 21st. Real quick, I want to I get your thoughts on his biography a little bit more. 
if you're an eccentric from the rural Midwest, and I think both of our both of our picks today have a <laughs> have some regional followings. There's there's an article in the Duluth News or something, and then you mentioned seeing him in Iowa City. So he's he's he's, he's true to his roots. But if you're an eccentric in the rural Midwest, you don't buy a parcel of land and start a farm. That's the urban eccentric wants to do that and go go organic farming. No, no, you you go to California and you start your own record label, right? And you <laughs> and you you be a, you live the wildlife, you be a wild man. I I wonder. If there's an alternative universe or an alternative dimension out there where you yourself followed that, because you, you've mentioned Nick Cave being a wild man who settled down, and certainly uh, Stuart Davis had his run-ins with drugs and alcohol and so forth, and now he's a family man in Boulder, but still wants to be the sex god of rock and roll. Is there personally any appeal to that lifestyle that, that you could have imagined your life going differently? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, that's an interesting <laughs> line of, I don't know if I would want to put myself in the same conversation as, as, as those guys. I think I've had a more normal, less artistic uh, trajectory from, from wire to wire. So I'll, okay. I'll, I'll leave, the, I appreciate the question, but I'll leave them in the, as okay. their own uh, group. Yeah. <laughs> just, to, just to con- conjure the imagination, the, the image of, you know, you, you sure. living the wildlife, at least for a while before settling down to your fine Ohio home. Uh, a couple more things on his website. Yeah, he's. Uh, I mentioned he's got a very nice website for one guy. He advertises also doing transpersonal hypnosis, one-on-one creativity sessions for rich people who want to discover their inner artist. You mentioned he's also doing an, a podcast on aliens and artists. So really multifaceted. And so that gives him, I think, a lot of grist, a lot of material to work with through his lyrics. That said, I think I'm ready. So go ahead. What do you think of the album? In picking an album to look at, I, I do admit I kind of hunted for one that was more interesting and, and more ambitious. He does have have some albums that kind of remain a little bit more solidly on the folk spectrum mm-hmm. for ill or or for good. But yeah, this is an album that is just so eclectic of musical style in a way that's quite intriguing. I found that probably for me, less than half of the tracks are savers, you know, that I would want to go back to more than uh, more than a couple times. Yeah. But the handful of songs that are really good, I found really strong. What were your first impressions of of the Uh, album? I was expecting, you know, another guy full guitar as as his live shows are with and was was very pleasantly surprised that there, there was a lot of variety and he's got about five other band members and I would agree that's a very ambitious and eclectic set of songs here and I think that, so I'd be uh, curious to hear what, yeah. what were the high points for you if you want to dive into you ready for individual tracks or do you want to keep yeah, it yeah I can, I can I can say generally that this album really helped me to think like you in terms of the, the tracks that you save and that you don't and I think we've talked about when we skip things and when we uh, want to listen again and again and I think this one really I can divide into four tiers if there's one song I really love a few that I like most of them are okay and there's a couple that I'd skip so like four tiers of appreciation as an album I don't know if I'll be listening to it as a whole very often again so uh huh so maybe let's start with maybe what we would call tier two for both of us the okay. kind of uh, B, B plus or A minus <laughs> sure okay <laughs> so what were what were some in that almost great category for you I would happily listen to uh, Beautiful Place the second song and uh, Reaper Wonder 
both, uh, I think they're tonally pretty different. Uh, the, the, the second one, as is typical on, a, on a, an album, that the second track may, might well be the single if it's not the first one. But that would be the one I would uh, introduce to, to people who just want to get an idea of what a singer-songwriter can do and still reach out for a, a pop audience. It was It's pretty catchy and uh, compelling, I thought. Yeah, I, I also liked Reaper Wonder quite, quite a bit. That was a bit of a... Maybe a bit of a palate cleanser, where the, a, a more mm. mellow song in an, in an album of some songs that are that are quite dynamic. Mm. And then even if this was, you know, before he kind of had that second career teaching meditation or being a spiritual coach of of sorts, I know a lot of his songs had lyrics kind of drawing on different mythology. But in the kind of the the Reaper Wonder song, I'm wondering is that more of a traditional song or a heretical song? You know, <laughs> putting himself in the position of the Grim Reaper. Can we imagine another? I mean, I'm sure, of course, if I ask, hey, um, you know, has there ever been another song written from the perspective of the Grim Reaper? You know, one, there's another song, you mean half of death metal? You know, <laughs> so, so <laughs> yeah. of, of course, there, of course there has, <laughs> but are there other songs, you know, written from the perspective of the Grim Reaper, where uh, the, the the Reaper is, seems to be such a, a mellow guy, you know. Yeah, yeah, he's a real sympathetic right. character. Yeah, right, yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty interesting with that one as well, ly- lyrically. <clears throat> And I think uh, when you go, when any singer-songwriter goes into the soft, sentimental, soothing voice, there's uh, it's kind of a hit and miss, and you, you don't expect the lyrical material to be uh, on, on the subject of death and taking souls quite so much, or, you know, introspective Grim Reaper, especially. Did you have others that you liked? In the kind of... Um almost great category i thought i thought the openers uh spit it out was pretty fun yeah kind yeah. of like uh in some, sort of like the 70s garage rock style kind of reminding me of someone like richard hell or or iggy pop <laughs> okay. um yeah such a, a a simple punk song but without mm-hmm. without sounding so generic that you, you would be tempted to uh to skip that track did you enjoy that one as well I, it definitely it's a great opener it, uh, it really gets the ball rolling and uh you know he's got a real he's got a real growl to his vocals on that, which is uh, which is nice. You can feel like he's a kind of atavistic, that letting out his uh, inner inner repressed feelings. You know, I think that's uh, something we all should do sometimes. <laughs> all right, are we ready for what's? I think you said there was only one track that was your absolute favorite. I think I might be in the same category as well. I'm curious if it's okay. The, it's the same one. Definitely not another lifetime. Yeah, I, I would agree on that unforgettable after. yeah <laughs> we could we could have the whole show be about this track and dissecting the lyrics and the, the different styles and uh, what it's about yeah no i think uh, it's a clear standout not only on the album but I, I think his best song on more than a dozen albums it's so rare that you 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 feel a song that's invigorating that just seems totally new and well i've never heard that before and it's like you know i think that the chorus is not only rousing but it's actually actual a hooten and a hollering and, uh, <laughs> and he even samples on the bridge, he samples some howler monkeys, I think. So it's just like, it's, oh, it's bit that in there with the, the, the Caribbean Latin percussion. And uh, I, I said the, the anti-natalist lyrics for those fans of the vehement movement of uh, <laughs> that I think you introduced me to back in college. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a song that just musically is really kind of zany in a, in a good way, drawing mm-hmm. on lots of different styles. And then as many many good pop songs kind of add different layers unexpectedly. Uh, I think with this one, there's at least a couple times where you think it's it's built to 
to kind of its full height. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of takes it a step or even two steps further, adding more stuff, adding, you know, a totally different lyrical style. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear that you found it his strongest track, period, because I, I actually haven't, yeah. you know, plowed through more, much more of his discography mm-hmm. other than, than, um, than this album. But yeah, it's a memorable one. And I, I mean, I think I see it uh, about take the belief in reincarnation for granted. I think it's actually, mm-hmm. it's about someone being kind of reincarnated for the for the nth time and kind of thinking <laughs> you know oh no you know so, kind of, okay. uh, so yeah that, it's, it's definitely an interesting perspective and you and from the intro you never really see it coming too it really gets a gets a surprise on you it's just like okay it's going to be another song and then suddenly there's this you know uh marimba or something whatever it is talking about slapping babies on the bottom and uh, He's, uh, I think, overall not much of a falsetto singer, but he lets it out here. It's almost Muppet-like, the the conversation at the end of the song where he's saying, you know, I don't want to go back into your body and I don't want to. It's, uh, yeah, just all over the place. And I, normally I think something like that is going to go off the rails and doesn't hold together as a song. But I think, you know, there's different parts of the song and it, it feels like one of one piece at the same time. Yeah, and he's maybe playing with, you know, if he's imagining like a consciousness in between states of, you know, taking a concrete form, it's almost like he lets his voice be more kind of like primal or or baby-like, you know, to match that. But then, I, I mean, I think he he's able to pull it off because he knows when, you know, his vocals become really quite inchoate, he mixes them so gently compared to the other instruments. So, yeah, I mean, it could be a harder song to listen to if his if his vocals were more prominent in the mix the uh, mm-hmm. the whole time. But um, even as they are, you can't miss them. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, the, the the mix is key there. Yeah, take a break yeah. and let the let the accompaniment carry it for a minute. I think at the same time, as I, as much as I love the song, I don't think I'd want to hear it at any occasion. It's it's kind of have to have to be in a in a mood to be need, needing to be uplifted. Maybe if you're looking for that. I wouldn't play it so for my uh, grandparents. Like I think is the standard question. Sure. So I had I think two other songs I'd noted as as being pretty solid. I don't Go know ahead. how many you had as well. So I had track number eleven and twelve, love, and then uh, Nicola. Yeah, it was um, a nice a nice outro, yeah. nice series there. Back to the sentimental side, of course. Yeah, and, and Nicola was one kind of like reaper wonder where it was much more mellow the lyrics were quite legible although with with that one i couldn't really make head or tails of uh, of what he's talking about in nicola but it was a kind of mellow enjoyable song it's not a song that you would ever turn off um no, no. but you might forget it's on after a couple of minutes if you've heard it before um well, that's that thing too is his very uh, concise with his songwriting he doesn't uh, have anything over more than four and a half minutes here and most of them are over in less than three he's got an ear for a good chorus he knows when to turn on the sentimentality and he knows when to rock out so that's i think more than you can ask from most uh, most singer songwriters in terms of uh, especially those who self-produce and then love i thought was kind of a throwback to some kind of shoegaze or indie rock with that kind of wall of guitars mm-hmm. sound so it kind of reminded me of like a my bloody valentine or yola tango or husker do you know the bands with the distorted guitar that just kind of rings and rings creating this sort mm-hmm. of uh texture that the song 
lives in. Uh, not not necessarily mm. a great great example of that mm-hmm. genre, but uh, listenable. Yeah. Sure, sure. Uh, if we're talking about comparisons, I don't know if uh, he maps on to any style overall or uh, previous uh, wall of sound shoegaze in that sense, but they're, they're just jump, jumping around. So. <laughs> you know, and, uh, what do you think? This is kind of what I like, what I find intriguing about him maybe most, and then also what kind of set a limit to how much I admire this album is I almost would reach for comparisons track by track. I don't know if you Hmm. kind of had that same feeling as well. I mean, they're different, but they're all definitely him. He is distinctive in his his own, uh, I think his voice is very strong overall in the the lower range, especially maybe when he he goes down more than the falsetto. Alternative rock, I, I hear a lot of 90s rock in him, so I would say a less funky Red Hot Chili Peppers at times and at other times more like Elvis Costello or uh, even when he gets very folksy but unusual topics something like uh, Adam Green of Moldy Peaches semi-fame in the past I don't know but uh, yeah I mean I think at, at the absolute best I think Talking Heads is kind of a good comparison really? where they where they have that <laughs> similar you know there's that sense of seriousness and zaniness at the same time which is hard to keep co-present maybe some kind of reaching for david bowie i don't think he's quite there but yeah you know, i don't know the, the kind of rock guru persona yeah i can i can imagine it in the thematics and as you mentioned yeah the, the zany versus serious and highly intellectual like i could see that but i think he sounds very different from david Byrne or or, uh, or bowie i think yeah do you feel him in the spiritualism and the the themes is that a refreshing thing for you or does it is there a point at which the lyrics make things a, a novelty song yeah i mean the, this also relates to something else i was wondering about because it seems like a lot of his songs draw pretty heavily on humor yeah. yeah so i was thinking about you know where's what's the line of there can be humor without it going into a kind of novelty or, or parody song sure um, well, any, as, anytime your as, lyrics as are well. clever too right yeah no i think summarizing unkindly the themes is birth death and lust lust more in the 90s and he's kind of grown out of that i think in his later albums so others would say that good and evil are often in play and uh generally like yeah buddhism and uh christianity i don't know if i necessarily want to hear a pop song about those those themes though most of the time oh yeah for that question i mean i don't know how much you've listened to someone like nick cave for example Mm -hmm. takes all of this stuff quite sure quite seriously Mm -hmm. and i think he's able to mostly pull it off because it's a little it's a bit more it's just a little bit more uh subtle and Uh i'd want to say serious but uh, but I think there's almost like a dimension of feeling in um, Nick Cave's songs that maybe isn't quite as strongly here. I think so I'm, I'm not going to give this album a perfect 10. And I, I no. would say, you know, the, the, I think there's a ceiling. There's a ceiling how, how, how great you, this uh, this style can go. And I think to, to compare with Nick Cave, I, yeah, definitely a lot of the darker themes and the feelings there and i think he's also he, he plays with a band he's uh, writes longer songs they all deal with mythology they both do i mean but i think nick cave has earned his stripes a little bit more i don't know other way to put it he's earned the stripes and probably a good uh, 10 and 20 times the money as well so we had to, <laughs> that too, we're, that talk, too. we're talking about talking about Stuart davis and not uh, nick cave, nick cave oh, on oh. the on chicken. the podcast, after a, all, right? A, yeah. chick, a chicken in the egg sort of yes. thing. Yeah, does fame. That's the thing too. He was a, the Duluth news article, which I'll link to in the show notes, in 2008, and his his 
albums previous to this in the early 2000s are all, I would say, similar styles where he gets a little bit more polished to his songwriting and a little bit more production and starts adding electronic elements and playing with an actual band and so forth. They're very hopeful that he's going to get uh, name recognition. He's going to even get into the mainstream. And uh, I think those are pretty false hopes. There needs to be an entry point. What's the hit single that's going to get him there? And I'm not sure as much as, you know, the songs that we enjoy are catchy and, and interesting. I don't know if it's going to... I mean, college radio, yes. Actual radio that people listen to, probably not. What do you think? And, you know, and there's another side of that, too, that it isn't so much his strange strangeness of his work or how eclectic it is, but that some of the genres he kind of visits are do actually seem a little bit tired. Like, in, I think in, mm. its, in its weaker moments, I kind of thought, oh, this album reminds me of other 90s groups like Everclear or Goo Dolls or I could hear or some crack, like or, Collective Soul I heard a few times and yeah okay yeah, yeah. or even um, cr- Crash Test Dummies in the there you know, he really gets into the low <laughs> low singing and then I, I kind of yeah. double check wait a minute when was this this is when 2012 yeah, and then I, yeah so. and then I kind of go and 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 why are we revisiting Everclear? Like were they ever <laughs> were they ever good? You know. Um, so boy, I mean, he's, there are some bands that are quite eclectic. Like the Magnetic Fields are a band where you could wonder how are the Magnetic Fields popular because they just mm-hmm. goof around with so many different genres. Yeah, um, a lot of Magnetic field songs are like not even carefully re- recorded, uh-huh. but that kind of playfulness is rewarding because it always feels inventive mm-hmm. with Stuart davis there are some great or there's one really great song here a lot of pretty good songs here but you feel a little bit like he's um i don't want to say like a tourist because he's mm-hmm. he's really quite quite talented but maybe almost kind of like a manic almost like academic interest in all these genres where he's able to kind of quickly absorb a lot of key features and then do a different version and um and then move on to the next thing so I, there's almost like a lot of play with music as a form. He's even quite talented as a lyricist, but there's not kind of a feeling of things deeply felt or authentic in a, in a way that there is with other artists that I enjoy more. So somehow it was kind of lacking that anchor. And maybe that's where the consistency is also a, a hurdle as well. I don't know what you found the, I, what I, were the weaker I, elements in your estimation? Yeah, I'll, I would just say quickly, the two songs I would skip were in the two, last half of the album, The Black Dot, and they're, they're already here. Yeah, I didn't care much for those. No, what you're saying about uh, what you expect from a singer-songwriter, the advantage that they have that maybe overcomes the disadvantages of lack of budget or, or extreme world-beating talent, you expect the, them to write songs about things that they care about and that they're sincere about or maybe their own personal experience that you can relate to and when you get into reincarnation i haven't been reincarnated to my knowledge so not not recently not recently yeah it's been 40 years but uh right <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a little harder to latch on to as he said you know it's all about religion so it's supposed to speak to your soul but are, does, does this guy really believe all the stuff that he's singing or is he just trying to get your attention and be again novel or it's not i mean the affect feels almost more like uh weird al yankovich or primus or something you know oh, something gosh. like that at some point we're just interesting uh, I, I, yeah. zany you know yeah on on the spectrum magnetic feels and, and Primus and Weird Al are, are, I think, light years apart from each other. And I, 
think that he is still on the, the more sincere side of magnetic fields. He's got some play in it, but I, I think, and he is a tourist, he is a religious uh, experimenter, as with uh, controlled substances, I understand, but in different states of consciousness. I don't know, that's the, the woo-woo mindset. It's Don't call them insincere for it. I think they, there are a lot of people who are just as devout as with any major religion. Have to ask him ourselves. It's not so much, you know, does he care or does he mean what he says, but is he able to kind of craft? And I, I think this even comes down to subtle things like tone of voice, where he it's almost like the songs are conveyed as ideas rather than as something that's also d- deeply felt. Whether he does or not, he may well, but I don't get the it, it doesn't translate to me. So, okay. you know, he, he almost seems like someone where he could teach a great singer songwriter class or even teach like a great class about you know like the history of rock and and pop Mm. and and pop music but somehow just that like that dimension of feeling that's pretty important to a lot of pop music somehow didn't quite come across in in addition to all these songs as like as great ideas you know Mm -hmm. which which they still were sure sure the song is this is kind of an intellectual exercise if it were to be taught in a class can we what can we sing about about this topic it's similar to that i think his devotion his lyrics are are, are often clever and, and very good and on as you mentioned on all more esoteric and unusual themes but i do think sometimes he also that affects the the feeling also is that sometimes he reaches for a rhyme and that if you okay he just said this word you know that there's only a couple words that rhyme with this this word and he's probably going to say say the next one in the next line and then Oh, there it is. So, over that's more of a feeling over the course of his full discography, though, rather than on just if you just listen to one album, you probably wouldn't notice. I would think. Mm-hmm. More general things. Have you heard any of his other albums? Not recently. Okay. I'd be curious which, if you wanted to point listeners in just one or two directions, what are, what were other albums that are worthwhile listens that you're able he's, to? I, yeah, I think he's got two two after this one, and I didn't find them quite as, uh, as you would say, strong as the, the, the two before. Something Simple and uh, What, and I think there was another one from about two, 2010 that are similarly genre hopping. Recommend those. His 90s stuff, he's just, he wants to sleep with his female friends, and it's kind of a, like, okay, wow, okay, this is kind of a creepy song. <laughs> Sing, singing about ads on a billboard like before the internet like okay that's that's a bygone era and as i mentioned his, his early work I, it almost sounds country rock today so you could say that he was ahead of his time for predicting how the, the way that uh, country and rock would uh, perhaps combine later on but it doesn't mean i want to particularly revisit it as you say so are we ready for ratings yeah yeah so my my rating at first, I didn't think I would uh, be able to handle it, and I actually re- bared uh, repeat listens uh, just fine, and so I'll, I'll give it a 6.5. Again, I think there's a ceiling on the kind of impression that I'm going to get from a guy who's basically a solo artist, self-producing, and uh, I think he might benefit from one album getting a hotshot producer to see what he could wring out of him and maybe get more of the the feeling and the pathos that we're looking for in our, our higher-rated albums. There's definitely a lot of uniqueness. It's unlike any album I've heard, so that's that's got to be positively rated. And I, there's only a couple tracks that I don't care to hear again. And I yeah, one superlative outstanding track on the album 6.5 yeah say I'm, I'm pretty similar i have him down as a the album down as a seven uh, although i would if you um asked me to add the fantano plus or minus i I'd, I'd i'd call it a light seven rather than a strong okay. seven and what i found kind of 
compelling listening to this is that it's strong suits and weak suits are are kind of the same where it's it's an interesting album because he has so many ideas and draws on so many different musical genres but then at a certain point it feels to be just a bit too much or he even includes a kind of turn to a genre of 90s rock that just one might not want to revisit but that doesn't dampen how interesting the one really standout track is and then there's a good handful of tracks that are certainly um worth saving and um re-listening to so yeah i'd say uh, i'd give it a seven overall and and one other thing to, to listen about since i know Part, part of what you're interested in in this, in this podcast is kind of explaining why some uh, albums are hits and, and some aren't, which is that it, it's actually quite common for some artists to be genre hoppers, but normally they kind of do it album by album. <clears throat> So there's kind of a cohesiveness to the sound of a of a given album. So like David Bowie or or Bob Dylan are famous examples where if Dylan has a folk record, he'll stick to folk. If he has a rock album, he'll mostly stick to rock. If he has a country album, it's not like each album is going to be a third rock folk and, mm-hmm. and country music. You can kind of tell it's the same band mm-hmm. and the same producer. There's like a more contemporary example where Miley Cyrus's Plastic Hearts, she tries to kind of go back to, and there's, hey, there's some good songs on there. She tries to go back to sort of like late 70s, early 80s rock music, and it has a cohesive sound. It's hard to imagine just taking Plastic Hearts and then putting two of those songs on the prior Miley Cyrus albums. It would just be too eclectic. So yeah, I'm interested in that difference of how genre hopping is quite common, but a lot of these more successful performers do it album by album. So, you know, once you've heard the third track of, say, a 12-track album, you kind of go, oh, I get they're, they're going for kind of a retro 70s thing here. Whereas with, like, Stuart Davis, it, you reorient yourself song by song. You know? Yes, sure, um, sure. Which is interesting, but it also can be tiresome. So, Did you find the jumping around jarring or just pleasantly surprising? It depends on uh, how good the song was, you know. Okay. Yeah, but I, I wonder your comment if he hooked up with a big deal producer, if they might have the sense to say okay this you know these two tracks are too too far afield for the sound we're mm-hmm. going for here so maybe let's mm-hmm. save them for the next for the subsequent album no i think there's any number of ways to do an album wrong and you're adding an extra layer of difficulty by trying to switch from track to track entirely different styles you know and you can also sound like you're just a tourist you can sound like you're showing off or it can just not not cohere in general so yeah i think uh the, the fact that this is, you know, basically listenable is a credit to him. So, so as a transition, these are very different styles from different areas with, I would say, regional followings strongly. And the mercurial male vocalists, I'd say, they're, they're pretty moody. Any commonalities that you can think of, but I think that both are dabbling in synths a little bit outside their comfort zones and maybe without full commitment to them after a history of being more acoustic, which I think is a progression a trajectory that a lot of bands have followed either in the 80s or in 21st century as everybody has able to go to go electronic and i think they're both trying to reach out to top 40 pop audiences likely in vain i think that both of them are very intellectual in their lyrics i think more political for mashri Layla and more philosophical and spiritual for stewart do you see any similarities at all between them so first of all i mean i really enjoyed the mashri Layla album so i hadn't heard of them before mm-hmm. so i appreciate you picking them yeah i don't see 
too many ties between, I mean, there's, you know, some element of genre mixing because obviously Mushroom Layla is having some instrumentation that still is, is maybe more typical of traditional music in Lebanon. Even there's, if their songs are still kind of 80 to 90% Western pop music, you still hear a little bit that sounds more um, Arabic. Uh, so I thought that mixing was was interesting. But they did seem the farthest to field uh, pair of, of the pairs you've uh, so far together as a whole. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Just real quick, the specs for the album, Ibn al-Layl, came out in 2017. Their version I have has a lot of demos and interspersed with almost vocal asides, uh, 21 tracks and 74 minutes on the version I have. I would uh, consider it more synth pop. It is on the label Shoop Shoop. And although they have very little ratings on All Music Guide, only four ratings, they're actually quite popular and well-known in the Middle East and have millions of views for some of their videos. Uh, you can find their albums on eMusic if you want to purchase. And I want to put the pose the question to you uh, right away, DJ Kibarumi, that there are seemingly two strikes against Mashru Leila two strikes against them that would prevent your appreciation. Number one, that they are now primarily electronic. And secondly, that they are singing in a foreign language. How did you appreciate them despite these two strikes against them initially? I, I tend to not listen to electronic music that doesn't have vocals. I mean, although okay. there's there are a, a number of groups whose music you know uses more synthesizers uh, than bands who I, I like quite a bit, but almost all of them are anglophone. Kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, Mushroom Layla was a band I liked them more after the second or third listen, or as I kind of read a little bit of translations of their songs or, or articles about them as well. But yeah, no, I think they're a really strong, strong group. Kind of remind me a little bit of this more recent groups that have kind of gone back to uh, 80s or 90s style with synthesizers like La Rue or Future Islands. I don't know if you know sure, sure, sure. either, both of those. You mentioned Future Islands before, and my, my ex was, was very much into La Rue. I never got La Rue. Why? It was so well-received. I never cared for them, but uh, go ahead. So, so, I mean, I'd say the the most prominent comparisons for me were were maybe actually the um, British, like, 90s kind of new wave groups like Depeche Mode, New Order, Pet Shop Boys, where there's that interesting kind of mix of, hey, if you you want it to just be nightclub music, you know, sure, like, it works as nightclub Mm -hmm. music, but both lyrically, they're kind of exploring darker themes and at least in the case of New Order and Depeche Mode, they're still kind of half a band. So they have, you know, drums, drum can, can play with a real drummer and the like. Yeah, so I, I was very, I was really impressed by them. So I'm glad to hear it was, you know, your own exploration that is uh, after uh, the first and second time. I think these, these guys actually really leapt out at me at first. And over time, I don't think I want to hear their album 10 times, unlike some others. So it's actually maybe the reverse in that case. And I'm just glad that, you know, although it was helpful to understand what they were singing about from it, I'm glad that there isn't just a, a system in your mind where having performed a Tiny Desk concert gives them validation and makes them worthy of your time. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a little worried about that. That I wasn't bowled over by many of your official Tiny Desk picks. So no, right, that does not. Right. That, that does not uh, Tiny Desk has had so many. That's hardly uh, automatic entry into the Pantheon for me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, they're not fully in a gatekeeper role for you, at least. So that's good. You will branch out. I've watched a bunch of interview videos with them. They're extremely political, and 
I would say this is another example where the out part of auto-obscurity supporting our LGBTQ artists out there. He also mentions struggles with mental health, anxiety, and so forth, and I think that's all great. Have you seen the documentary Trembling Before God about gay Muslims? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Oh, I guess that's one to pick up for this one. More background before we get into the album, I guess. Okay, so the, these are musical flag bearers, in my view, for not just moderate Islam, but even progressive Islam, where they, they sing about like, going against misogyny and obviously homophobia. They've been banned from performing in Jordan for, I quote, contradicting the three Abrahamic faiths of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And they've also been banned in Egypt for some yahoos just floating the the rainbow flag at one of the concerts. The Egypt Egypt banned them as a result of that. They faced their fair share of uh, adversity, faced some death threats. He makes a he makes a really important point. If we go back to religion too, also that Western portrayal of Islam as entirely conservative is. Uh, first of all, you know, uh, Western Orientalist imagined nonsense thing, and uh, he, he uses the example of uh, playing in a Christian majority town in Lebanon, and still getting the same uh, homophobic uh, uh, disapproval. So it's it's uh, it's more of a universally conservative thing rather than an Islamic specific thing. He is a point that I think is worth considering. Do you want uh, advocacy and deep politics in your music, or you just want to sing about or just uh, have a good night at the club there? Oh, not not all of the time, but some of the time, <laughs> sure. And then if a group can manage to do both at the at the same time, I mean, of course, that that's that's impressive to both be um, stridently political and have songs that are still listenable and entertaining, and you know, perhaps even beyond whatever the topic was of of immediate concern. So, like, bump, mm-hmm. you know, did you catch Bill Maher railing about the Oscar nominees, about how they're all just depressing and not entertaining? He, I, I saw that. I hadn't I hadn't clicked on it yet. He's, he's been going on kind of a music and movie rant lately about meritocracy and music, how we should only listen to the most talented and and we should expect something between Godzilla versus Kong versus I'm going to cry my eyes out and want to kill myself after watching a movie. So yeah. in between would be giving the Oscar to just Godzilla or Kong, right? Not, but not, <laughs> but not, they can share an Oscar. Or if, they, if they can't share it, let, let them have a sequel and fight over it. But, right. uh, yeah. Okay. No, uh, their tiny desk, if I go back to that, they were singing right after the nightclub shootings. And so they actually had a song that was about nightclub shootings in Lebanon. So there's some some shared culture, I guess. Pretty, pretty uh, deep, emotional, moving stuff overall. What do you think? I actually liked their record more than the Tiny Desk performance. Okay. I thought that the Tiny Desk performance was competent. It was it was watchable in a way, maybe a nice introduction to them, because I think I watched the Tiny Desk before listening to the whole album. I don't know how disciplined you've been about listening to all 25 tracks of the album, because I, I think mine only had something <laughs> like 13. Yeah, that, that and is, then this was like a deluxe edition sort of thing. And then of the 13, I kind of picked the four or five that I liked and then mostly okay. you know, re-listened to those. Sorry. But, uh, you know, somehow their sound works really well with a few more... You know, they have enough layering of different tracks within each track to make it interesting without making it overwhelming. And I found that the NPR version was just a, a bit more acoustic and stripped down in a way that felt a little bit 
when you've heard both, it, it felt more subtractive rather than additive. But Take It By Itself, it was a good performance on Tiny Desk. But if you make me choose the album version versus the Tiny Desk version, I choose the album versions. Sure, sure. I think that's more my usual stance. And a lot of people in the comments say that they, they like the Tiny Desk versions better. I, I respectfully disagree. I think it was more useful for getting the background of what the songs are about, I think, too. You don't want to uh, read the actual lyrics and translation just to, to have an idea, oh, that's what they're singing about, and that's why he sounds so so somber and uh, longing with his voice. And I think that's really uh, what for me, elevates them above the regular synth-pop band. It's the guy who has a, both a great low voice and a really chilling, chilling falsetto when he wants to bust it out. Not being able to understand the lyrics has never really bothered me. So, And they, they really go from catchy to danceable to, you know, disco, funk, and synth-pop, Middle Eastern lyrics. It's, it's an unusual sound, or at least we may think it's unusual because we don't live in Beirut, and maybe that's just a paradise of alternative Muslim culture and Arabic culture, for all I know. I think they're having some hard times in Lebanon now, so we should all gather around and support them and buy their albums since they can't yeah, tour. Yeah, it, it seems like they're more of an exception in Lebanon also, where from what I'm reading about them, they're by far the most popular group there right now. So it's not like they're one amongst a cohort of nine or ten other popular groups. You know, they really are the standard bearer. The singer is on record for saying that Middle Eastern pop groups are even more carefully managed than in the West. Maybe more than the West, but that it's pretty much impossible to be more, uh, you know, s- produced and manufactured than a K-pop band. I would imagine. <laughs> so that, that would be the, the real standard of how much production is too much, and what do the record labels think sell, and what are they, what are going to put uh, the teeny boppers in the stands in the stadiums? But they're definitely resisting that. They, they say that they weren't trained as musicians and that they play what they feel. They're, very little is contrived, I, I think, they say. He says he couldn't sit down and write a pop jingle if he, if he had a gun to his head. It has to be felt in the moment when he's writing and the songs are tossed around back and forth between the other musicians in the band until something works, almost like a kraut rock style, I guess, almost. I guess we could talk about the, the individual songs on the album, which were your favorites. Let me see. I think my favorites were number five, Maghawir, which translates as commandos, and number 12, Ashabi, translates as comrades. I found that the songs I liked the most kind of had a an interesting blend, a lot of work kind of in the lower registers and the upper registers. I think that's what gives kind of dance music a good anchor if there are interesting little synthesizer fills that are more high and then a compelling drum beat as well to kind of balance mm. out the track. I like how the synthesizers aren't always really clean. Like they'll add almost like a deliberate amount of like a decay or distortion to the mix that gives them an interesting texture and in a way kind of match the texture of the singer's voice where he also has a voice. It's not, I mean, partly it's just how the Arabic sounds to our ear with all of the mm-hmm. kind of more... I don't know how you describe that, the throaty pronunciations that we aren't quite as familiar. But even, you know, beyond even in the words that don't have that as much, there's a kind of grain or texture to his voice. It's kind of a a comparison to Stuart Davis, because Stuart, I mean, Stuart has such a clean voice. And then when he adds texture, you really feel him making the effort to, it's like, okay, add, add more texture, Stuart. And then, <laughs> you know, and then he, he, adds, he adds it in there. Whereas the singer for Mashru Layla has a more consistent voice, but it's almost like there's layers of clarity and texture in there mm-hmm. by default. So mm-hmm. he, does, he doesn't kind of switch registers in the way mm-hmm. Stuart Davis does. I was impressed, like song number five, I had it 
down as being five and a half minutes long. So I think it's kind of an achievement where there's both a, a song that is, uh, you know, to a certain extent is like a repetitive dance club song, but then they're also doing little things, musical, adding different fills, taking different parts out, adding them back in to make it interesting enough to listen to the whole time. Uh, or even keep your attention. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, so were those two of your favorites as I. well? I think there are just so many highlights on that album that they probably have been overexposed to appreciate them. I think the Commandos, I think there might be a, a video for that one, too. Yeah, I agree that I'm much easier to please, perhaps, and more, more willing to uh, just sit back and let the music play and not scrutinize it, I guess, as much. You mentioned his natural, I guess, texture and more throaty singing, I think that's probably as much the language as his intention. I've heard people describe Arabic as really difficult to separate into individual words, which makes it hard to, I guess, emphasize certain individual words in a song, so that's not easy to do. His uh, speaking voice is also, I think, very different than his singing voice. So much of it must be practiced and affected. But overall, I think both of those songs, I don't didn't find a lemon on the album or in any of their albums, for that matter. I'm, I'm a little bit more partial to the, uh, the gin that would DJIN, either the pre-Islamic spirits or the drinking gin. I think that was an interesting. Yeah, I uh, like that. I like that one a lot as well, and and that was one where they played with backup vocals a little bit more. And I I have a note that he mixed that the singer's voice is even a little bit more out front in that one than mm-hmm. some of the others. So yeah, I thought that was a standout as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely, uh, yeah. The background vocals are that that what was missing from the the version of uh, Commandos. I thought in the uh, or in both of the songs on the, on the tiny desk that they need to mic the backup singers more. Did you by chance see the video for Roman? I don't think so. I watched, uh, you know, I watched the Tiny Desk, and then I, I watched a concert on. I think it might have been MTV in Lebanon. They did that seemed mm. to be a pretty big deal. And the concert, which was closer to their album versions, was really good as, mm. as well. They had a whole light show, the works. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, looks like the guy has a real stage presence. You wouldn't think he's got uh, any issues with anxiety. He looks like he's having a good time up there. Uh, And at the same time, on the opposite end of the spectrum, Roman, he's sitting in a pickup truck with a lot of veiled women. And Pitchfork, gatekeeper for all things hipster, says that the video is one of the best of the decade and has been seen about three million times, which is unusual for an out-of-obscurity pick in this case. And the, uh, the message is very clearly of the song, if not evident from the lyrics, the the video is very much about escaping the white and male gazes and has a very strong feminist message. So again, very, very politically correct. And we should support them with all our might in terms of getting their message out to the wider world. Which track was that on the album? Roman. I might not see there's There's a problem with versions, too. I've heard the same songs on at least two, maybe three albums. They recycle different versions and demos. Anytime they have the deluxe edition or expanded editions. So if you've only got 12 tracks and my version is much longer, so maybe you'll have to go somewhere else for that. Yeah, I'll check it out. Yeah, and I mean, another interesting part of their background is apparently they got going where they were in a sound recording class at the American University in Beirut. So that's also mm-hmm. an interesting part of their origin story, just getting going as a... The irony, Stuart Davis sounded a bit kind of academic, even though he's... Kind of, <laughs> um, it seems like he's mostly just kind of doing his own thing, but these guys actually started sure. out in, in a class and then just kind of kept kept going. They described themselves as architects and designers, so yeah, yeah. 
just like all the guys who were in the college radio at our place, they were all geologists and what else? I don't know what the what other majors are. Our most luminary graduates were, but uh, probably not in the conservatory. <laughs> those who made it big in the music, uh, pop music world, at least. So I had just um, a couple others I found strong. Uh, Marik and Icarus, both I noted, had more strings and had, you know, mixed with musical styles that sounded more clearly non-Western to me. I, I appreciated some songs like uh, Number Six, Kalam was kind of a more mellow palate cleanser. But yeah, probably the final track, at least on my version, Marik was my other fourth favorite. Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of individual songs, they're all just, you know, it's hard to go by the title when you don't have the lyrical connection to them necessarily. Three Minutes and uh, A-O-E-D-E are both, I think, they've made uh, repeat appearances on other albums of theirs. And I think their they're 2019 follow-up to this, The Beirut School, maybe a superior album. I'm not going to go quite far into it if you haven't heard it, but recommend, if you like the direction they've gone, more electronic, then, then stick with that. But if you like preferring more of the violin and more of the Middle Eastern sound, almost kind of a Roma, the 2011 and 20, 2010 albums and the EP are, are much more acoustic. Okay, so, yeah. Whichever you prefer. And in, in terms of almost going as far as a hawk and a hacksaw, the former uh, Neutral Milk Hotel guy who went in that direction. I could almost hear a comparison with their earlier albums. Lots of other Middle Eastern picks from the 1980s. Dissidenten was, I think, a pioneer. I think they were actually German, but they took on the Middle Eastern style and I think sung in something like Arabic in the 80s. So, hooray for them and the pioneers. From Israel, I'm impressed with Uzu Bazooka, O-U-Z-O, and then Bazooka, or their uh, Middle Eastern psychedelic rock. Jerusalem in My Heart, I think, is another uh, Arabic psychedelic abstract uh, experimental band. And uh, Aufgang has a, a member from Lebanon, and I recommend their Turbulences album for uh, some actual singing in Arabic. So those are all the uh, triangulation I can think of. You heard more of the 80s synth pop sound coming in and the New Order and uh, Bad Shop Boys. Yeah. So, those, I mean, those would be my frames of reference. I think you're much more knowledgeable about some other popular music in the Middle East because I appreciate the extra stuff there. But I mean, I, you know, it, it's interesting. We're at a moment now where, you know, more synthetic electronic music has kind of taken more. I think we're kind of over the binary of the kind of organic, quote unquote, real instruments versus the <laughs> where someone like Mitski, where there's a kind of growing consensus that her best album is also the one with the most synthesizers. Now she's moved away hmm. from just, you know, kind of guitar rock. Is that Sylvanet. the consensus? <laughs> I think it's getting there with okay. her newest album. And like Sylvan Esso is another newer artist I like who does, you know, all of her stuff is just her and then the guys she writes synthesizer music with. So, But using synthesizers that aren't always clean, that have the, you know, a lot of distortion and decay, which it almost is like taking, uh, you know, those digital forms that, that could sound too clean or, or too polished and then muddying them up a little bit to make them sound more uh, complex or just to have the kind of distortions that we're used to with, with rock the, music, especially. The idea of a dirty keyboard doesn't quite sound right, I'll admit. Yeah, it's, it should be more of a raw and noisy guitar rather, or, uh, yeah, with all the effects pedals and so forth. If you're just doing that with a, with an electronic instrument, it's like... I don't know. There's the feeling just doesn't uh, 
the expectation, the appreciation. I'm not sure what, but uh, yeah, I, I think that the divide is still there for a lot of folks. I assume that you were one of the folks who was always going to side on the acoustic side. So no, it depends. Depends on the artist. Yeah. Okay. Well, happy to hear it. Can go to ratings unless you have more. I can start out with this one. I found this group really compelling, kind of drawing on at least to my ear both the kind of new wave synthesizer pop like New Order and, and Pet Shop Boys um, kind of recalling Pet Shop Boys and both having dance music that had a lot of social critique into lyrics and music vid- videos from what I'm, I'm learning here as well. Newer groups that also are kind of recalling earlier more minimal synthesizer mixes like Future Islands uh, but probably especially after watching one of their live shows on YouTube I'd say Depeche Mode is probably the most prominent group they sound like to me partly just because i think often these synthesizer bands are if they're not fronted by women they're fronted by men that have a kind of higher vocal range hmm. so uh, that singer kind of recalled uh, david gahan with that lower uh, vocal range in particular so i look at the depeche mode album violator as one if you play a few tracks side by side with that it sounds very much like a similar musical genre even 30 years apart in in, mm-hmm. in recording almost it, it didn't occur uh, to me so, but now that you mentioned yeah i, I can i yeah. can hear it yeah. so i would give this an eight out of ten that's wow. what i would say i think i think it's the first time that your pick i've rated higher than mine so, yeah, so I, you, I, I hope it you was got me finally but... congratulations on, <laughs> we, we, we call that a switcheroo on, good yes yeah. yes <laughs> there were a number of tracks that the way i listen to music i kind of culled my favorites so there's some that were still kind of repetitive enough that I, I wouldn't re-listen to, but the handful of songs that I, that I enjoy, I, I would listen to many times. And I'd actually, you know, it's a credit to both Stuart Davis and these guys that, you know, as I've listened to them in headphones or while driving, you'll notice kind of subtleties in the in the arrangement of switching from the left to the right channels. Mm-hmm. So they're even worth listening to with different equipment or contexts because there's rewards, su- rewards. subtle enough yes, stuff yes. going on. Yeah. So yeah, eight, eight, yeah, eight out of ten for this one. Before I give my reading, I wonder, do you think that Western pop audiences could embrace them or is the foreign language lyrics too big of a hurdle to get over? Yeah, it's hard. I don't know if I want to say definitively one way or the other, although they have... I think I saw they started recording English versions of some of their songs as well. So oh, really? it's hard to imagine them moving beyond more of a niche group or the type of group that would do like a five to 10 city tour in the U.S. rather than a 40 city <laughs> they, tour. Uh, but I mean, I mean, you know, they're probably only one of a handful of Arabic pop groups that can tour in the U.S. So they're already doing quite, quite, quite well. But yeah, probably the majority of their fame is going to remain in um, the Middle East, I would imagine. I'd like to think that they're still on the upswing and they did, uh, they have done, I think at least one, maybe two North American tours. So they sold out in New York and Boston and Toronto, I think. And they described their audiences as originally the first time they played it's all the Arabic diaspora. They hope to make headway into the more, uh, you know, white bread America. But I really do think that similar to people who won't watch a movie with subtitles which I think they're missing out on a lot of it's it's almost more difficult to appreciate music if you're a lyrics uh, listener if that's what gets you about music is connecting with the lyrics and if you don't if you can't sing along if you can't understand in the first place then I think it's you've got an uphill battle for sure but um, I will say it jumped out at me at first and I like all of their albums their full discography is well worth checking out I think they've only got uh, four or five albums all the things you mentioned, I appreciate on a much less complicated level, <laughs> as usual. So I, this is something that will probably 
be repeated. I don't, yeah, the, the mixes and the, uh, the cleanliness or the, uh, the front and center, which, which, uh, elements are, are the fills versus the bridges. I, you know, I couldn't tell you which is which, but overall, I think that this kind of wore on me more than, uh, after like four or five listens, I, I, I kind of wanted to hear their, their other albums rather than this one again. And so that reduced me down to a 7.5. I still think it's great. And I still think they deserve all of our support, great music and for being politically uh, important and groundbreaking, not only for their region, but also everybody needs to, in the West, needs to understand that the Middle East is not a monolithic, horrible, conservative nightmare, basically, and not just all that. Uh, there are people living regular lives with regular, relatable problems in, in other places other than the United States. And so I think this would be a good ambassador, not only for the Middle East, but for world pop in general. So I think it's very important that, that more people hear about them. And I think they're, yeah, they're, they're doing well enough. They're tour- they, have, they have toured successfully and sold out, uh, presumably mid, at least mid-sized venues. So they're on the right trajectory. So if you haven't heard of them yet, you hopefully will soon. All right, you're here. No, so they're the consensus. So Mushroom Layla is the consensus winner for for today. Yeah. Oh goodness, don't don't make it so competitive, please. We're <laughs> all just we're all just we're all doing good work here, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're, <laughs> we're evangelicals for our obscure tastes. So I'm impressed that you were able to find Stuart and uh, bring him out. He's definitely somebody who, who deserves more attention, and he's working really hard for it. You can tell. So people deserve to be rewarded for their hard work. It doesn't happen often enough in music or arts in general. Thank you.